We are in the life of a man named Elisha. Elishama. We are following now a person, but there's somebody that we kind of see as the sort of supporting role that I want you to, to, to take a serious consideration of. And part of it is because of this, the challenges we're going to see in this particular text. Now, you know I want to be clear when I'm saying uh, this is my opinion. So they'll say this is scripture and this is opinions. And of course, I would always have you test everything the way that I'm approaching any scripture, but all the more when we're actually talking about uh, Scripture. But when I tell you my opinion, all the more, I would say. And as we look at this particular text, we are introduced, and again, we're kind of going back a little bit, to a man named Gehazi, or if you will, Gehazi. It all depends on, it depends on where you're kind of from in the world. And we are introduced to him tonight in that sense. And... We've we've kind of met him last week, but I want to kind of go back so we kind of get some context. But it's important to note, and I don't normally do this, but it's uh, it's important to kind of know the spoiler on his life. The, the man will end up a leper, and the man will end up in a very bad state. And I can't help it, and my mind races on things like this. A man who's mentioned 12 times by name in Scripture whose name, by the, by the way, in a simple sense, means sort of Valley of the Visionary, which is interesting because this Elisha character, the, again, uh, who was the understudy to Eliyahu, to Elijah, uh, of course, ultimately gets the mantle placed upon him. He raises up to that position. And it's important to note that. And there are some things. Now, again, let me make really clear. There's, we're going to be looking at situations here, but I want... I can't help but draw parallels between this Gehazi character and Judas Iscariot. Because what, if, if, if I knew the end of Judas' story, have you ever done this with a movie? And not that I'm endorsing Hollywood or you to go to see movies or whatever, but there are certain movies you have to see more than once unless you've been foretold of the ending. Uh, my wife, who does not ever entertain the idea of watching anything, anything beyond 12, if that makes sense, uh, had to see Get Out. And part of it, I think, is she kind of has a mom crush on one of the main characters, and she, she, she sort of adopts characters in her heart, and she definitely does it with you know, this particular character. Uh, but it's one of those movies that, and again, I'm not endorsing the movie, it's just for context, or it's just sort of as a parallel, that when you know the end of the story, you sort of see all of these things leading up to it. But in the end of it all, what you do in the end is go, oh, I get so much more out of the movie. It was more entertaining or it was more thought-provoking or whatever the case is. Uh, but when it comes to Scripture, this is infinitely more important because what we're doing in a situation like this is, is that you get to Judas Iscariot, the end of Judas Iscariot's life, and there's some very scary things. Like he is repentant, he is remorseful, but he is never going to go to Jesus for that forgiveness. And what separates him from Peter, Simon Peter, is not his, his betrayal in the simplest sense. Because Judas, if you think about it, never denied that he knew Jesus. Peter would deny it to the point where, of the two of them, Peter was the one who wished a curse upon himself. In the simplest sense, may I burn in hell if I know this guy. That's what he's saying when he says anathema in his third vehement excusal of not knowing Jesus. 
The issue is not the falling. And please take comfort in that. Not license, but comfort. It was what they did with the sin afterwards. Now, if you're in my impression, if Judas, although, can, although we clearly know there's going to be somebody that's going to fulfill this role, and it's scripture foretells of it, but if it were just simply a person who had fallen and done what Judas Iscariot had done, you start to see little traces, and the more you look at his life, you kind of go, wow, look at this, and, and how the sort of first time you sort of see him pipe up, he's criticizing somebody who's lavishing love upon Jesus. And it's just how Satan had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Uh, the term Balo threw it at him. And Judas Iscariot's heart was an open door for anything. Now, we live in this city. You know how stupid it would be to leave your door wide open. And then it says ultimately Satan would enter. That He'd opened his heart so far that Satan could actually have freedom to step in. Now, some people would use that as a text, a proof text that a Christian could be possessed. The problem is that the scripture really denies that Judas ever was. It says Judas was a thief from the beginning. He was never a, he was a follower of Jesus in practice and maybe even roughly in principle, but he never was in heart. But what's clear and evident from all of the texts is that nobody saw him coming. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, nobody says, it was probably Judas. On my first thought, it was, it was probably Simon Peter. I mean, who else did Jesus say, get behind me Satan to? Who else did he say, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you? Not, it isn't going to happen. And if we look at it, the bigger fall would seem obvious. And, and understand when Judas Iscariot goes to the religious leaders, he will tell them, lead him away safely. It's an easy word to miss. And then he will go back to them and say, I've betrayed innocent blood. But he never takes that sin to Jesus. And never calls him Lord in Scripture either, by the way. And so the more, and the only reason I'm even developing that unplanned is because I don't want any part of Judas in my heart. I don't want anything in my heart that would resemble that. But then I also don't want anything in my heart that would resemble Gazi in that sense. If I know that's where he's going to end up, and he's going to end up selling out a work of God, I don't want that said of me. And I wouldn't want it said of you either. Uh, and if we're going to be fair, there's a part of each of us God needs to slay that looks just too much like this. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll kind of sum up our second of the four uh, uh, historical accounts in this chapter. And then look at our last two. But we have to at least see how he's introduced and what the situation is. So pray with me, would you please? God, as you tell us, as snow falls down from heaven and does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands on, causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so is your word. It never returns to you empty. And then you tell us that we would go out in joy and break forth in peace, and the mountains and hills will actually break forth in, in joy before us, and that the trees will clap their hands. It just sounds like a really, really happy event. And that's all 
because your word doesn't return empty. It isn't like your word doesn't return empty and therefore it'll make miserable and cut to pieces people uh, that are seeking you, but rather that it discerns the very intent and thought of our hearts. And we are just asking tonight that we would take your word and mix it with faith where it would profit us. So please have your way tonight. May your word burst open and come alive and may we be so fed and so encouraged and challenged at the same time. Would you speak fluent us? So immerse me in your Holy Spirit that you would be seen and come upon me tonight, God, that you would minister through me. I'm just your jersey. Put me on now, please. And speak in a way that each of us, you know the situations in our life that are on the forefront of our mind and those that we would actually hide in a dark corner. Address what needs to be addressed tonight so that we would love you the way that you deserve to be loved. In Jesus' name. Amen. And the first two stories, and again, these are history, but for the sake of making it an easier word to use, mothers are, in essence, restored to their sons. In the second story, it is a Shunammite woman. The second Shunammite woman in Scripture, of course, the first being the gal that was hired to be David's bed warmer. Boy, that just doesn't sound right. And her name, just to make it even better, is Abishag. And she, the king can't keep warm. That's King David. He can't keep warm. It's the beginning of this book. And they hire this girl. The one girl in Scripture we read, she's very beautiful to behold. David did not want an ugly duvet. Pardon me for saying. And this gal basically lays to him, lays next to him, keeps him warm, says he did not know her. And of course, that doesn't mean they didn't shake hands and say nice to meet you. Obviously, it means that they were not carnal in their encounter with each other, other than the fact that she was there simply to keep him warm. Would be a rough job, by the way. Ladies, you should be thankful. Now we meet a second Shunammite woman. Our second Shunammite woman here is a wealthy woman. She's a wealthy woman who sees, and again, I'm summing this up, but again, don't just believe me, but consider this. She sees Elijah, with an S-H, Elishma, if you will, in route between Mount Carmel, which seems to be one of the stops on his circuit, and Samaria, which also seems to be a stop on his circuit. And in between, if you will, 20 miles away from Mount Carmel is this place where she lives, Shunem. And please understand, again, when I'm reading this, I'm reading this for me first. I want to be able to say as Paul, what I first received, I give to you. And she says to her husband, who, by the way, she does kind of seem to wear the pants in the family, just to say, it's, um, she says, that's a man of God. So we need to build an addition on the house for this fellow. At first she invites him in. She does, not he. She invites him in. Praise God for, for godly women like this. But there's something that stands out to me, and I don't want you to miss this. She's a wealthy woman. She's in a town that's not necessarily quite elaborated in Scripture. But she invites him in for food. She's a very beautifully Mediterranean, even more so Middle Eastern thing that I adore. But the thing that stands out to me is that Elisha is in roots. He's, if you will, 
what we might think of as off-duty. He's got his spots. Mount Carmel is one of them, of course, a very important spot. Of course, the, his, if you will, his predecessor, the beautiful standoff with the prophets of Baal. Just to make it worse, of course, the other stop being that of Samaria, which is the capital of a very rebellious ten northern tribes at this time. And so he's, hey, it's on. He goes to Samaria, it's on. If you will, it's like it, you're going to put on your rebuke. When you get up to Mount Kamel, maybe you're putting on your reflection. You know, you're seeking the Lord and you know things that God has done there. But this is en route. And please don't miss the fact that this gal notices en route that he's a godly man. It is the easiest place for you not to be. You kind of know, hey, I've got church at this time. I know how to put on my praise. I know how to put on my Christian thing or whatever. I know, hallelujah, they're in my pocket. You know, it's like the things that you know need to happen there. And you kind of know, in these environments, these are places, but you know the danger, the most dangerous thing for a person seeking to be godly is anonymity. Because it's the one place you can reinvent a sinful you instantly. We don't read that he wore godly clothes. It wasn't like he was wearing Christian t-shirts that were aware of. It wasn't like he was wearing a cross around his neck that would have made no sense anyways in those days. But it's like, I mean, it had to be his behavior. But here's the weird thing. Until she invites him in for dinner, how does she even know? Is it like, did he have like this godliness as he walked? And it's like, yeah, 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 the ladies are going to say. But it's like, consider the fact that the reason I say that is, I think there are, a lot of more, there are a lot more people out there that are gathering data on you than you think there are. Now, I'm not here to make you paranoid. I'm here to actually tell you, you have the opportunity to be a witness at your downtimes. Because here's the thing. No matter where I go, I'm a Christian. And we can all kind of say that if we've confessed Christ as our Lord and Savior. But it's weird to think that we have on or off times. But let me say this. No matter where I go, I'm a boy versus a girl. Although we could argue man and all that. Some of you would actually happily argue boy. But the bottom line is I'm a male. And it doesn't matter where I go. I don't actually do anything to make me not male anywhere I go. Now, I might be more tender in one spot and a little bit more whatever in another. But in the end, but in the end of it all, I'm always going to be that because it's just who I am. And I'm always going to be a Christian, but it is amazing how I can think that I have more of a choice in the matter. But what's beautiful is this guy is observed by somebody that appears to have just seen him walking by. Now, does he stop in town? I mean, it's a long enough trip that it would be wise for him to stop, whether it's to get supplies or to go and eat food or whatever the case is. Certainly somewhere in that, there are reasons for him not just to whip through the place, but somewhere in it that we don't have in Scripture, she observes this guy and says, that's a godly guy. But then there's another temptation because a rich gal has invited you to her house. No, I'm not talking about it's like the graduate. I'm talking about the fact is now you're going to be put in a place of comfort, which is also a dangerous temptation. Might I say to you, I challenge you to look at the story of Hezekiah, of Hezekiah, who, by the way, 
through all of the, the trials and rough times and watching the north taken captive and all of those things, he appears to be a godly man. And then God says, get your house in order. It's time for you to go home. And he whines like a smash cat. And then in all of that, he finally, God's like, okay, well, let's just show you something. And God gives him just immeasurable wealth. And his heart really does turn. And it is in that period of time, he has the nastiest son that becomes the nastiest king in the history of Israel up to that point. And you, by the way, for what it's worth, you also rule the longest of all Judean kings. Are you aware of that? God sure is patient, and the guy will ultimately repent. So when you look and you go, oh, that person, that president, or that prime minister, or that leader, or whatever, why are they still in office? Because our God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. All of that said, somewhere in all of that, he's gonna, he goes and he takes his spot and, he, and he's invited into the home. Now, again, husband's there. This isn't one of those weird, hey, cutie, godly guy. This is not a flirt to convert. He's already converted. And all of that, ultimately, it's important to note, then she says to her husband, this is a godly man and let's build an addition on the house. He appears to be, though we're going to read he's old, he appears to be young enough to build an addition. And by the way, I love the fact that apparently, according to the way that Eliyah, or Elisha, Elishama, is, is living, she goes, this is all the guy's going to need. He's going to need a bed, he's going to need a table, he's going to need a lamp and a chair. Apparently, he did not have a writer. Some of you are familiar with what that is. That's one of those things like, I don't work or perform unless you meet all of these things. All of the M&Ms remove all the green ones. It's, you know, I mean, it's the nuts things. I want it all. This has to be at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And I make sure that the room has to have exactly this size bed. And I want this color bedspread or I'm not coming. It's the nuts stuff that people play. And believe me, I've been around enough of that. I know. And it's like, but it's like this. It's like, you know what? This guy, I think we could just make him happy with the bare essentials. Why does he need a table? Because it's fairly likely he's going to be reading or writing something here. And why does he need a bed? Because the guy needs to sleep. We get that. But we won't worry about the food. I'll take care of that. That's all he gets. And we don't read Elisha going, uh, this is cool for my servant, but I mean, where's the sweet? And there's just none of that. It is important to note, though, it is in this rich woman's house that Gahati shows up. Now, he may have been there before this point. Fair, fair to say, but God does not mention him until verse 12. Now, I think that's interesting to me. That he wasn't with, for instance, he wasn't in situations where there was greater famine, and though there's a famine around us, we're in a situation here where he's in the lap of luxury. Now, and again, I'm just wondering, please understand, this is my weird bend on it, but the whole idea of it is I want to be in a situation where I'm going to take the warnings God's going to show me, and if they apply to you, praise God, and if they don't, pray for me. But at least I'm being transparent. And part of it is, is that you really kind of see this guy only really appear at the beginning in very comfortable situations. And that is something to say when your Christianity always involves comfort. Now, look, at you guys have come on a Tuesday night. There's something to be said for that. Some of you might have to ride on a warm train back to your warm house. That might take you a period of time. And I'm not trying to belittle it. Yes, I am trying to belittle it. The bottom line is, is that and it's amazing what we make ourselves martyrs of 
compared to just about every other place in the world. And we call it, you know, you ever use the term? We use it often, first world problems. You know, it's like, I missed a train. Another one comes in two minutes. I'm, I'm, I'm gutted. You're gutted because you missed a train? Was there like, were you like, were you going to give like a liver transplant or something? And now you can't? I mean, it's, I have to, you, I have to wait two minutes. Two minutes is a long time. You ever actually put anything in the microwave for two minutes? Those are long, that's a long two minutes. And the reason I say that is, is that Jesus warned us, our Christianity is going to cost us. And our Christianity is going to be inconvenient. It's going to be expensive. And it's going to be unsettling because we have to pick up our cross to follow him daily. And if we're going to love one another, love is not cheap. And David, who leads us in that brigade, says to God, or says to, to Runa, the guy who actually has the threshing floor, who wants to give it to David, and David says, I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. And I, every time I read that, I'm reminded, what has my Christianity cost me? I have good friends around the world. I had friends who were missionaries in India. A man and his wife and his children who because of radicals, Hindu radicals, threw themselves in their car for protection, their station wagon, and they covered the car in petrol and set it on fire, and they were burned alive. And yet in that, family members went back there to mourn them and pick up the ministry. You know when you join that crew, it's going to cost you. Some of you are familiar with the Elliott family down in Central America. The Edge of the Spear was written for it, where the men were horribly killed and the wives came in to finish the job. Can I just say, you know when it says, and who knows how far we're going to get tonight, but let me say, you know when it says after chapter 11, can anyone tell me what chapter 11 of Hebrews is? It's the hall of faith. Yeah, it's like all of these people that did all of these things and their sufferings and how they overcame them and how they refused the benefits of all of these other things. And it was just all of these things that faith drove them to do an action. And then he says in chapter 12, and again, this is for me. I hope it ministers to you, but it ministers to me because this is the kind of guy I am. It says, because we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, or cloud, I'm sorry, of witnesses, And he says, therefore, let us throw off those things, those weights and those encumbrances that would, in essence, keep us from winning the race. This is loose paraphrase now because the point's the first part. And here's the idea of it. Imagine, if you will, that we've qualified on the track by accepting Christ, and he puts within us a desire to win. The thing about running a race is it's about your personal best. It's not about beating this guy first and foremost, because you don't have time, unless you're ridiculous, you don't have time to look around. You, what you want to do is you want to give everything you have. That's the point of it. And imagine being at the blocks and saying, somebody gave me a cross look to Moses. Somebody looked at me weird. To Isaiah who was sawn in half. This is my audience. These are the witnesses. And you know what witnesses is? That's your audience. These are the people watching me run the race. 
and watch me have a hissy fit over something that means nothing compared to what they've gone through. And somehow I think if I kind of meander my way through this, I'm going to get a standing O from them. One of the first things I learned the first trip I went to Africa, and this was one of my favorite things that's echoed in my head ever since, is one of these big, beautiful, chocolate-covered guys with eyes the size of pancakes who smiles with a smile that hurts your eyes in contrast. And he says, brother, you know, with this warmth, you know? And he goes, brother, in your country, when you have a burden, and I'm going to be a terrible say this, it's like, where in the world am I coming from? You know, you pray for a lighter burden. But in our country, we pray for a stronger back. And I never forgot that. I'm like, oh God, could you just make it easier on me? And the only reason I'm saying that is, if that is in my heart, I'm already seeing a hint of Gehazi in that. Showing up at this place. So ultimately, Elisha, not Gehazi, goes, you know, it would be really cool to pay her back with something, don't you think? Will you call her? Gehazi then goes and he calls the Shunammite woman. He says, is there anything I can do? You know, can I give you property? I mean, can I talk to the king? Or can I talk to the soldiers for you? And again, I remind you, he just rescued the king of the north, the king of the south. You know, that's Yehoram in the north, that's Yehoshaphat in the south, and the king of Edom, by the way. And he rescued all three of those guys as they were going to battle against Moab. And so he kind of owes him one. He owes me a solid. He's like, do you need me to do anything for you? And she goes, I live among my own people, which seems like a kind of a strange response, but it isn't. Now, why would he talk to the king? Maybe we can get you a better piece of property. Maybe we can get you someplace nice. You know, someplace on the coast or something. And she's like, you know what? I'm, I'm among my family here. I'm good. Well, what about talking to the, the commanders? Well, if I can talk to the commanders, well, then clearly they won't force quarter in your house. You won't be responsible. I mean, imagine it'd be like saying, can I talk to the, to the head of the IDF? Maybe when your kids turn 18, they won't have to serve for a couple of years. She's like, you know what? I'm okay with all that. I'm a patriot. I'm among my own people. I'm good. You don't need anything. So she leaves. And now Elisha is having this conversation with Gahatsi, and, and the conversation is, hey, so... I wish we could do something. And again, I'm loosely paraphrasing. Don't just believe me. And, and he says, well, you know, she doesn't have a son. Doesn't say she's old. Says her husband's really old. Probably old enough. He's still young enough to build an addition on the house. But maybe not enough to build to, to fill it. Anyways, and so he, um, he goes, well, okay, call her back in. And he doesn't ask her. And he goes, next year you're going to have a baby. And she's like, please don't play with me. Do you know how many years I've hoped for this? Don't lie to me, please. And he's like, no, next year about this time. Lo and behold, next year about that time it happens. And as it happens, the next thing we get to is a time when there is reaping. That's important to note. The time of reaping begins in roughly March, April. And it ends in roughly October. Matter of fact, two of the three required feasts are built around it. But if you've ever been to Israel during this time, there's a magic there. And I'm not trying to say it in some weird Harry Potter way. But it's like there is, let me say it this way for myself, there is a romance in that time. 
And you would watch men to this day walk through their fields. First of all, the first thing you notice, and coming from California, that's on the same latitude. A lot of it, it, topographically, it's very, very similar. A lot of the same plants grow. Uh, One thing I've noticed is you've had this season of rain, and if the rain doesn't come, that's a season of great danger. Because you know what happens if there isn't great rain? There could be great fire. We've seen it, and some of you are familiar with the fact that roughly the size of the entire UK plus has burned down in California over, you know, roughly uh, this last year. Because with the drought, things don't change colors except brown, and it becomes very dangerous. And then what happens is if the rains come, you have these horrible flash floods. Happens, by the way, a lot in places like in Getty and that kind of thing to this day. Matter of fact, it's like you have to change the map every year because of the flash floods. Now, follow me on this, please. During this time, the hills change colors when the rain is there. And they turn green as a hint, and then these almost unbelievable colors. And to be honest, that's one of the things I do like about England. But you've got to get on a train for it. And once you get on a train where you're not driving and you're just able to look out the window, all of a sudden it's like eye-shattering colors pop up out of nowhere. That It doesn't look like anyone planted. It's like God did. He's like, that bouquet's for you. And I just love those moments. But in Israel, it gets more intense because what happens is, to this day, especially in some of the kibbutzim and those kind of places, what you will find is when the beginning of those early harvests, that's like barley, for instance, happen, there are old men with these really, really big like magnifying glasses. Now, if I had a really big magnifying glass, it would probably be to see how you could burn an ant or something. But anyways, it's uh, one of the reasons God saved me. But... They go and they are scanning the beginning of their, when things are starting, they're just beginning to bud. Colors are showing up everywhere and the, the smells are, they're intoxicating. And men are going and they are scanning every square inch of their fields to find the very best hints at the top. Traditionally, the little white parts that start to grow of the barley. And they take these little parts and they go and they collect basically a whole collection of them. It would be like the kind of idea if you shop at Amazon and you put everything in the uh, basket and then you know you're going to remove most of them, but now you get to compare them all. That's what they're doing in their hands. They're putting it all in their hands or in a basket. And then they look to find the very best ones. And then they take those best ones to Jerusalem now they would do it towards some of the places beside the synagogue. And they would throw it in the ground and they would stamp really, really hard. And they would say, as the, har- as the first fruits are, may the harvest be. And the idea is simple. That's why you're picking the best. You're like, wouldn't it be great if the entire harvest looked like this? This is fundamental in our story. Because here we're at the beginning of that. We're at the beginning of the reaping. And that boy goes, oh, my head, my head. You can argue over whether that's heat stroke or whether he has an aneurysm or whatever. We don't know. All we know is there's something with his head. The boy is young enough to be carried to mom. And the boy dies on his mother's lap. 
it is, to me, one of the saddest moments in all of Scripture here within the earthly context. And she... She does not do what any mother would do in a moment like that, which is hand him over to be instantly taken care of and prepared for burial. It's a crazy moment because usually you're going to do that before sunset. She goes and she puts him in the prophet's room, in that little addition in the guest house, and she's going to go run and get him. As she runs to get him, She's, asked, she's told her husband, by the way, she's done, no, she's done nothing to break even the social codes of her day. She's like, can you get me a donkey? And then she's just like, look at, I don't care how fast this thing goes unless I say slow down, don't slow down. We are not stopping until we get there. And she gets there. In between that, Elisha sees her coming. He obviously recognizes that they have quite a relationship by this point, it seems. And he sends Gahatsi to her, apparently seems younger, and he says, go, go and see what she's about. And she, he goes, and she will not give him the time of day. And there's something hinted in that. Somehow in that, it seems to me that Gahatsi doesn't have a relationship with this woman like Elisha does. And there again, I'm challenged. You've got to know this, that as things grow or you become more profile or whatever, it's easier to not have relationships with people. And you know, all it takes is one weirdness to justify it in your own head and you feel you're entitled to be an island that God has clearly said in Scripture that's not acceptable. He says in Proverbs 18.1, whoever desires to isolate themselves, it says, seeks only their own benefit and rages, I love that word, against all reason. But you're like, well, I have a, I have a right to do that because everyone's just going to be like that person. Or I will do whatever is necessary not to let that happen again. She goes right past him. She's like, it's well, and off she goes. But she falls down at Elisha's feet. And when she falls down at her feet, she starts to chide him. Did I ask for a kid? Did I ask for a boy? Didn't I tell you? I don't want my heart broken like this. I don't want my heart. Do you know the pain of a mother losing a child? Do you know this kind of pain? How could you know that pain? But what's interesting is that Elisha, and it's important to note, this is in verse 27. Gehazi tries to push her away. Look at verse 27, so you know. When she came to the man of God, notice it doesn't say one of the men of God. The man of God. At the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away. Is there anything like that for me? Am I in any way interfering with somebody in a desperate need because they didn't tell me? Because somehow I don't have that relationship with them. Somehow I'm going to be upset and even interfere with them actually getting to God? That sounds insane, but do you realize for the disciples of Jesus, it's one of the two things they did the most. Stop people from coming to him and argue over who would be greatest. Figure that out. But the, the man of God said to his servant, Kahatsi, he says, let her alone. Her soul is in deep distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and not told me. It seems to me that, that Elisha was more amazed when God didn't speak to him than when he did. 
But it is also important to note that there's nothing about sin or disobedience or rebellion in Elisha. And sometimes men of God just don't know it either. There are times where God doesn't tell them or us either. But that doesn't mean you're not a man or a woman of God because of that. So she chides him. And so this is verse 29. Let's just pick it up there. I better start reading some verses. I know it's just, it's story time, but I want, I mean, it's verse 29. So Elisha's turned to that as he turns to his servant Gahatsi. He says, get yourself ready. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, don't greet him. Kind of like the woman did on the way. And if anyone greets you, don't answer him, but lay my staff on the child, on the face of the child. Are you with me on this? Verse 30, the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Who is she talking to? She's talking to Elisha. She is not talking to Gahatsi. And I think that's interesting. You'd think if she had total confidence in Gahatsi that she would have gone with him. She's like, I'm not leaving you. I know the difference. And by the way, if Gahatsi was part of the parcel of the situation before that woman's house, would she have said there are two men of God we need to build a place for? There's nothing to prove that he wasn't a servant in her house and didn't just sort of move over. I don't know. The Bible just doesn't say. But let's face it. Elisha was Eliyahu's understudy and look at what happened to him. What a great opportunity for career advancement. You could be the next prophet. You were a pit, prophet in training. So look at what he says. And I guess we're only going to get through this story, and I hope that's okay with you, because there's too much to glean. This is what I want you to do, Gahati. Get to that boy. And I kind of get the idea. I remember Gahati's the quicker one, apparently. Get to that boy. Lay my staff on that boy. Watch what God does. You with me so far? But the woman's like, I'm not going with him. I'm staying with you. Verse 31. Now Gahati went on ahead of them, laid his staff on the face of of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Is that a weird thing? I remember reading this one of my first times reading through this many years ago and going, there was neither pulse, nor heartbeat, nor breath. Those would be the things I would expect. So why voice and hearing? Could it be it wasn't the boy's voice? that God's speaking of here. What if it was Gahatsi's? Because what we see that's going to be radically different when Elisha gets there, well, look at what it says. He went back to him and he said to him, the child hasn't awakened. It didn't work. I took the stick. Imagine he kind of runs up. He's got the stick in his hand. He gets to the boy. Donk. Nothing's happening. All right. Grabs the stick. Didn't work, buddy. Come on, Elisha. Give me something better to do. You get it? Elisha came to the house, verse 32. There was the child lying dead on his bed. Clearly, he was telling the truth. And he went, therefore, shut the door behind the two. What does that tell you? Where are the two at this moment? They're in the room. You can't shut the door behind them unless they're facing you in the room. Does that make sense? Unless their back's to you, which makes no sense. 
Look at verse 33. Listen to this. He went therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, and what did he do, according to this verse? He prayed to the Lord. Guess what happens when you're praying to the Lord? There is voice and there is hearing. You know what's interesting? I challenge you to prove me wrong. I don't believe we'll ever see one prayer come out of Kahatsi's mouth the whole time we see him. Not just tonight, his entire life. And this is what I learned. Kahatsi is not a man of prayer. And here's my thought. I'm not talking about corporate meetings where we can pray because Jesus even talks about that. Oh, they love to pray in front of people. They make their phylacteries long. They make their prayers long too. And they ornament both of them so that you know, boy, that guy's praying. God's like, but it's not... It, it, it's God is if God were saying, whether I'm there or not, it just doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. But when you're in your prayer closet and no one else is looking... Either God's there or he's not. I mean, clearly he is, but the point is, that's where it really matters. Where's my prayer life? Or do I see a hint of Gahati in this? Where, if it would be anything, or am I just throwing sticks and going, it isn't working. Come on, man. You're the master. It's obviously your... What's wrong here? You're with me on that. And you're going to need to pray because what God tells him to do is about as politically incorrect and weird as anything has ever been. So he prayed to the Lord and he went up and he lay on the child. Now, I don't know how old this child is. The Bible doesn't make clear. And we can talk about the different things. In the, there are, but it's obviously, again, just going with the basics of this without just kind of going into the Hebrew. What's clear is he's young enough to be carried to his mother and he's young enough to die in his mother's lap. And he's young enough for mom to carry him then up to this prophet's room. But now you've got a full-grown man laying on this dead boy. Boy, if, if you're going to do that, God better have told you. But it gets even wilder. He put his mouth on his mouth. I mean, at that point, you don't even have to tell me any of the others. Eyes on his eyes, hands on his hands. None of that matters. Once you get mouth on the mouth, it's like you had me at that. It, the craziness of this command took such faith. Because if the child's going to come too, he's going to open his eyes, look at you, and you're laying on top of him. You ready for that? And he stretched himself out on the child. And the flesh became warm. In the grammar of this, he didn't just go, well, hey, look at that. He was on top of his kid for a while. Which tells me one of two things could be happening. Either he's seeing a difference by faith, or it may be that his warmth is being transferred. And he goes, he's there on top of him long enough that it's warming up that flesh. But what's clear is the boy's not back yet. So what do you do at that moment? Do you say, well, I tried too. I mean, you now think of the difference. Hear me on this. Gahatsi threw the stick. Elisha threw himself. Which one will I throw? Now, don't worry. If you're dead... Oh, yeah. Oh, man. We could, oh, we could so... You're right. We could so build on that. But if you die, and I'm not prophesying here, don't expect me to lay on top of you. Just want to make that really, really clear from the get-go. But... It would be wiser if I threw myself at you in not a weird way to serve you in your life. And say, well, I mean, as a pastor, we'll let my staff do that. 
or whatever the stick, whatever the emblem is of our thing. Here's my program. Here's our course. Here's our whatever. But how often am I throwing myself on something like this? What's very clear in his relationship with the woman, and I remind you, he's doing this in front of her. Remember, he closed the door behind them. She's watching this guy lay on the kid, and we don't read anywhere. I mean, well, he's, he's dead, so at least you, you don't have anything to lose. But it's like, we don't read anywhere. Hey, get off my kid. There's something in his relay. He obviously has thrown himself in a right way into the lives of these people where Gahatsi hasn't, or she would have shared something with him, or she would have gone with him. Somewhere in all of it, what's clear is this man was genuinely interested in people's lives, and it involved, to me, it seemed to involve prayer. Chinzar, every one of you, if you were here long enough, and it won't take long, you're going to get these irritating texts from me often that's like, hey, I'm praying for you today by name. And, and I know most people aren't even going to read it anymore. But it's like, it's still there because it's true. And it's like, I don't just like, oh, here's a group, let's do it. I'm actually handpicking every person on my contact list one at a time and praying for them as I'm sending it to you. And there's a reason for that. I love praying for you. And I've learned it's a lot easier to minister to people you've been praying for. So fair enough. So get this, verse 35. He returned and walked back and forth in the house. And again, he went up and stretched himself on him. Now, walk back and forth. Do you think he was praying again? He's like, all right, Lord. And imagine if God's like, I want you to go and lay on that kid again. And you're like, are you sure about this? I laid for a long time. And I'm not too sure which would be worse, him staying dead or him waking up and seeing me on top of him. It's, I mean, it's a really weird world. And he's walking back and forth, and he's just, and finally, he's going to go back up. And he's going to lay on the kid again, eye to eye, hand to hand. I want to see what you see. I want to feel what you feel. I'm out the mouth. Now, here's the really fun part in this. He returned, walked back forth the house. He went up again, stretched himself on him. Now, it doesn't say, and he stopped. Put yourself on this image for a moment if it doesn't stumble you and weird you. You're laying on somebody that's dead. Your eyes are trying to butterfly kiss their eyes. Your mouth's on their mouth. Your hands are on their hands. And it says, then the child sneezed seven times. How many of those, I remind you, your mouth is on their mouth. I wonder how many sneezes God in Elisha. Were you off by the first one? Probably, right? Let me tell you about one of the most radical moments in my life as a 15-year-old kid. And we're almost done here. Obviously, we'll finish with the story. At 15, I became a lifeguard at a place called Centennial Park, just outside of Chicago. It was a it was a man-made. They dumped tons and tons of. of sand and tried to make it look like a beach. I should have known I was called to California from that. And uh, and I got, to be, I got to be part of this thing. Of course, like always, I lied about my age then. Uh, and, you know, I don't anymore, by the way. I'm 22. Just kidding. Uh, and uh, and so I was, you know, and it was before Baywatch and all of that. There was nothing glamorous. I just thought it was cool. And I had a heart to help people way before I knew the Lord. And so we were in these situations. And again, there were, you know, there were the old guys that basically blew whistles and tell everyone to stop running. Then there were the young guys who basically hit on girls. And then there were like a couple of us that actually thought, well, this is probably like a job. We should do something. And you got your training in the whole bit. And they had these floating piers. They were just basically these flat pieces of wood. They were like little 
you know, Porta stage pieces that floated in the water. And kids would play this game called tag, this pure tag game. And the idea of it was that the kids would try to touch each other. And often what kids would do is they would hide underneath the staging. And when it would pop up, it would trap air. So they would hide under there. No one would think to look there. And a kid got trapped there. So as this kid got trapped there, he was clearly more than just sort of drowning. Now, you guys are, you know, people are running on the top of this thing. You don't hear a kid banging. So ultimately, someone starts to see feet pop up on one side of it, and they drag this poor kid to shore. And as they drag this poor kid to shore, everyone's looking at each other going, who's going to give this kid mouth to mouth? Lo and behold, I'm always going to be the first person to jump in situations like this. So there I am, I'm on top of the kid, so to speak, pushing and breathing and pushing and breathing. Now, there is something they don't teach you to warn you when you're actually, if you've ever had sort of CPR or those kind of training, and that is that if you're trying to save someone's life, it's a pretty good possibility you're super hyped up on adrenaline. So you're not going to, when they say like breathe normally or try to breathe, you're not going to breathe normally. Like you ever been in a plane then like if these things come down, Put it on your face and breathe like you're going to breathe normally. Everyone's mask goes down. The plane's descending. You're about to die. You breathe normally. Well, this was one of those situations. So what happens when you breathe super hard and you push really hard? You, make the, you may bring the kid to life, but he's going to barf. And he barfed right in my mouth. I will never forget that moment. The question is, was it worth it? It's the only context I could think that could ever possibly be worse. The good news is he was breathing and he was, he was more normal after that encounter than I was. And the only reason I say that is I just, I read this story and I just think, well, what would it be like to have a child sneeze in my mouth because I was on top of a mouth-to-mouth, eye-to-eye, and hand-to-hand? What would it be like for Gahazi to see this? I threw the stick, bonk, it did nothing. So he called Gahatsi in. Wait a minute. Verse 35, he returned and walked back and forth in the house and he went up again and stretched himself out. Then the child sneezed and he opened his eyes. Wait a minute, then he had to call for Gahatsi? And then he says, as he calls for Gahatsi, he says, call the Shulamite woman. Could you tell me a big difference between the first time he was on the kid and the second? The first time, both of them were in the room. The second time, apparently, they weren't. And I wonder what that's like. You ever wonder how many times in Scripture Jesus kicks everyone else out of the room to go and pray for a person who's dead? Like, he doesn't want that lack of faith in the room at a moment like that. You know how hard it is to dream with somebody who's telling you that that dream's impossible? Unless you're a fighter. Dreams are not supposed to be practical. Dreams are supposed to be motivational. The practical comes as a result of that. You're like, okay, now how do we make it happen? Do you know, until moving here, there's never been a dream I've ever had that hasn't come to pass in my life. So I'm just waiting for the next couple. I really believe they're ones the Lord's given, although I'll say some of those things clearly were way before I knew him, but that doesn't mean it was way before he knew me. In all of that, He's going to make sure that the woman gets her boy back, but also that Gahasi gets the truth. So he calls Gahasi and says, Get the, call the Shunammite woman. So he called her. She came into him and he said, pick up your son. 
which tells me, because you could say, well, of course, any woman that just lost her son is going to be able to carry a Volkswagen or a Volvo up to another room. But at this particular moment, she's not in that state, and now she's in total shock. And she goes, so she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. She picked up her son and went out. We have a stark contrast between two men. In one case, you have a man of faith and of prayer. And in the other case, you have a man who is not a man of prayer. And what we'll see, not only there, but certainly later on when we see in the next two stories, he's not a man of faith either. But he could probably look very practical. He could probably look very administrative. He just doesn't trust, which is what faith is. Now, as we go to prayer, there's a million places to take this, but let's take it to the simple and most obvious. There is an impossible situation outside of God and a man of God. Now, it can be a woman of God, too. The point is not the gender. The point in all of this is is that there's somebody that is surrendered to be a conduit versus being a cul-de-sac. I just want God to use me. They didn't say he was a man that had God. And some people make the Holy Spirit like the Holy Spirit's an it. And you get this. Next time, think twice before you mess with a man of God. You know, it's like without God, we are just doofus people that should get our butt whooped in moments like that if it weren't for us. We think, well, it's all me. Look at You know why you're so awesome? Because God loves you and because an infinite, awesome God lives inside of you. And you didn't earn it or it wouldn't be grace. And there's an impossible situation here that a woman in faith is not going to let people embalm her boy. She's going to give God a crack at this. And for her to do that, she is going to go to the inconvenient and expensive. And she is going to do whatever is necessary because there is a desperation in her heart because she loves this boy. Now, granted, it's hers. But this is a boy of promise who, by the way, is raised from the dead. Mind you on that. Can I just say, if I loved people like I should, maybe I had more desperation for them and it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be keeping score of how inconvenient or expensive or whatever it would be. But in the end of it all, no stick is going to solve this. But I want to be also on the story like the Elisha, wouldn't you? I mean, if the two characters, which one do you want to be? Now, if you knew ahead of time, what if God actually said, I want you to know you're going to lay on this point and he's going to sneeze in your mouth. Do you punch the clock at that moment and go, okay, you had me at sneeze, we're done. Would you say at a moment like that, I've got a servant, let's get the servant to do it. Or would you have the kind of relationship with them that like, you know what, first of all, I know this boy, I know his laugh, I could tell you some of his freckles and I know the things, the food he likes and I tell you, I know what makes this kid giggle. And it's like, I love... I love that. And it's like, and not only that, I know this woman. And I know, I know how much pain she would be in or she is in at this moment because of this. This is a guy that put people first here. It's like, I would hate to see that woman grieve like she, like I know she will and will continue to. And to be honest, I'd hate to see how this moment leaves a crater in her being for the rest of the time she spends on earth. What, what would you pray, you know? I mean, and she's desperate. I, I'm not even this desperate 
for me than I should be. When I see the Son of God inside of me not thriving, not because He's not thriving, but because I'm somehow walling Him into something that He shouldn't be walled into because of my own stupid will and the hemorrhaging of my own appetites, what? Can I just throw myself at the feet of the Master and go, I am not leaving you. And I wonder if those words echo. Those are the same words He said, by the way, to His Master, Eliyahu, when Eliyahu was leaving, I'm not leaving you. And I wonder if somehow in all of that, I wonder if in this last moment it was Elisha's turn to say to the kid, I am not leaving you. Do you get up? Well, as we pray, can I say this? This is the call of Jesus. And Jesus, in love for you, will take your sins and mine to the cross and die there with it. Because someone needed to pay for that. And it was either you or him. And he chose him. Which one of us would do that? And then raise again. And offer us a new life. And say, I'm with you even to the end of the age. I am not leaving you. And I'm going to come for you and I'm going to take you home with me. And we're going to spend eternity there. Do you know Him? Or are we really putting on a, the, are we putting on a Gahatsi robe and going, well, we're in the crew and so was Judas and so was Gahatsi. He was the number two. But he was the number two that was impotent in this story, wasn't he? Nothing in this story shows us anything good about Gahatsi. The woman wouldn't speak to him. He was ineffective there. The only thing he was good at doing was calling the Shunammite woman, which was a direct command. It was the one point where you could say he's directly obeying the direct command of the master. And look at, even an unbeliever can do something in obedience to God and see benefit from it. But that doesn't mean he's a believer. I'm sure, I mean, if you think about it, Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Somebody got stuck with Judas. Wouldn't that stink? I wonder, remember when Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down and they couldn't heal the kid. I wonder if that was Judas and his, his, travel, his traveling buddy. I mean, I'm wondering. I don't know. Judas has been trying, but it ain't working. I mean, I don't know. I do know that there were seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts who were casting out demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They had no relationship with him. And apparently it seemed to work until someone called their bluff. And the one guy possessed by the one demon, jumps the seven boys and they run out of there naked and bleeding. Which has to be really weird when the priest is sitting at home and the boys come in all beat up and naked and go, how was your, where have you been, boys? I mean, it's just a weird situation. And you get the idea, it worked until their bluff got called. Now, is there any bluff that could be called in this room? Because you know what the great thing is? No matter what side that you try to sneak up on Jesus, there's nothing you're going to find but perfection and, per- and awesomeness. I'm so thankful for that. And as we go to prayer, what if we just risked it tonight and just said simply, God, slay the kahatsi in me, whatever that looks like. Even if it's the selfish part or the part that's keeping score or the part that would not do something as insane as this if God told me to. I wouldn't even throw myself in anyone's life in whatever way.
Will you pray with me? I want to thank you, Lord, because what you tell us in Scripture is that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were the dead kid. And yet, Lord, you didn't ask for the boy to be revived and then brought to Elisha. Elisha came to him because he was dead. He couldn't make it on his own. He put himself right upon him. And he took the death right off of him. And in that same way, Jesus, you came down to earth because we could not rise to heaven. And you took all of our sin and our filth and darkness upon yourself and killed it all at the cross, paying for it in full. And when you were buried, it was buried with you. And when you rose again, you left it behind. And we who were dead in our trespasses and sin, we have been made alive by grace. We've been saved. And I thank you for that. And I thank you, God, that you know us and you want us and you've thrown yourself at our lives. Forgive us for where we've dodged or evaded the love you so quickly wish to lavish upon us. And I pray tonight, Lord God, that that would change. Jesus, we don't want to just confess you as Savior. We want to declare you as our Lord. And we openly give you invitations. Slay all the gahatsi in every one of us. That when they look at us, they would see the Master not ourselves. So, bring life from death in our own beings because in the end I know that Gahati in essence will be the walking dead. That's the sort of symbol of leprosy where the body dies on the outside, numbs itself to death. And we recognize we could do that too. And we don't want to be that. We don't want to be numb. Deliver us from that, we pray. And make us faithful servants, men and women of faith and men and women of prayer. Please don't let it be that you have to move us out of the room for you to do your work. But use us, Lord, to do your work and save lives. We confess you, Jesus, as our Lord and our Savior. Not because we're contractually obligated to do it over and over once would be enough, and yet we want to do it because, Lord, we need to hear ourselves say it. God, you are our Lord. Jesus, you are our Lord. And as our Lord, we just pray, slay the kahasis in us, we pray. And raise up faithful, thriving men and women of you. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.